This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. All right, welcome back into the podcast. It is episode number 128 of Play by Playcast, the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business. And I did promise at the end of last week's episode that we would check in with ESPN and Big Ten Networks and NBC Sports Chicago's Jordan Burnfield. And that will happen, just not this week. Uh, Jordan and I were going to sit down and knock out a pod last week when he was doing Ball State Purdue on Big Ten Network, and we didn't get a chance to do it. And now he's doing potentially Ball State, uh, but we'll see because there are a host of teams here uh, at the Charleston Classic for ESPN. So Jordan and I will get a chance to sit down over the next couple of days, and we will hopefully bring you that conversation Uh, either next week or in future weeks. Uh, But I'm at the Charleston Classic here in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, with Ball State men's basketball. And by virtue of that, there are seven other teams and two ESPN announcers. So there's a lot of podcasting going on. Uh, We will hear from Mike Kennedy from Wichita State in the coming weeks. Chris Stewart, who is the basketball voice of Alabama, will join us in the coming weeks. Uh, We've had Eli Gold on, who does Alabama football uh, previously and I'm going to give you a wrong number, but it was back in the teens. I think it might be episode 19 off the top of my head, if you want to scroll back uh, through the back catalog. Uh, but today's guest is the guy that had the call of Virginia Tech and Ball State on ESPN um, yesterday, if you're listening to this podcast on time. His name is Doug Sherman, and he's been with ESPN in one capacity or another since 2003. Originally was doing games, and he'll get into the whole breakdown of it, Um, but not on a full-time basis. And then he began doing games on a full-time basis while he also had another full-time job in broadcasting. And he'll talk about the nature of having to, and and trying to uh, successfully pull off uh, the double duty there. Uh, Doug is a graduate of the Syracuse Mafia. He graduated from Syracuse in 1988. He's in the same class as Mike Tirico, and we'll get to that uh, off the front here. Uh, but his story is uh, really cool because of the, the career twists and turns and the, the, the working two jobs and um, biding his time and putting in the work and putting in the effort and uh, you know was doing games on ESPN for a long time before he got to the stature and the status um, he is at now. So we'll talk about that whole course. Um, we'll touch a little bit on his preparation, uh, how much he goes back and looks at things, what he looks for, what makes good television. But I think what's different that we get on this week is uh, his analyst talk. And we'll touch on working with Dick Vitale and working with Jay Billis and working with different analysts and how you adapt and adjust to the guy who's sitting in the chair next to you and also how he preps to work with different analysts. He doesn't just prep for the game and the opponents, but he preps for the person he works with. So I think that's an interesting twist we get to uh, here with Doug Sherman. Uh, But as we do with so many guys in the Mafia, uh, we start with his time 
at Newhouse and at Syracuse and the guys he was with. Uh, and the favorite question of, uh, did you know then that a lot of the guys that were around you would turn into what they are now? Doug Sherman is our guest on episode number 128 of PXPCast. Doug, we'll start this where I feel like I start with everybody that goes to Syracuse, which makes everybody that listens to this podcast uh, either exuberant or eye-rolling. Uh, tell me about when you were in college and who you were at WAER with and what that atmosphere was like as a student. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, second of all, Joel, I was there in the mid-'80s, so I got there in the fall of 84 and was there through the spring of 88. And uh, Mike Tirico is a classmate of mine. And uh, Ian Eagle was a couple years behind us. Sean McDonough was uh, three years or four years ahead of me. Um, so we had a lot of talent. And, and you know, the, the thing that I tell folks, that when those guys are your colleagues or your peers, and they are as good as they were at the ages of 18, 19, and 20, you realize the bar is very high. And if you want to succeed in this industry, you better work at it and get better. How high was that bar? How good were they at 18, 19, 20? I always love asking, like, did you know then that 30 years later we'd be sitting here talking about the same guys and, and kind of what their beginnings and origin stories were? Yes. Very simply, it was clear from, from the start with each of those three guys I just mentioned. And I, I'm, I, I could go on forever talking about other guys who are very, very good and have made, you know, tremendous marks in this industry. But Mike in particular, again, Mike and I got there at the same time in, in September of 1984. And by the time I figured out a couple of days into my freshman year where the WAER studios were to go down and, and get involved, Mike was basically an upperclassman. I mean, he was so far ahead of all the rest of us, his aptitude for it, his drive, his passion. Uh, he, even though he is class of 88 with me in a lot of ways, he was ahead of us by a year or two or three, and he socialized a lot with the upperclassmen, and, and he really did, quote, turn pro after his junior year because he got hired by the local CBS affiliate in uh, Syracuse to do the, the weekend sportscast. And uh, so it was very apparent with him right from the start. Same thing with Ian Eagle. So Ian was class of 90, I think, and I very clearly remember him coming in and realizing oh, there's another one, that it was very evident as soon as Ian got behind a microphone that he had it, whatever it was, it was just part of his DNA right from the start. There's like an eight-year period, I feel like, where like you could just rope off, I don't even know, like 86 to 94 and capture like 90% of working national media right now. <laughs> uh, how intimidating, at some respects, was that? When you're coming in, um, like I remember when I was a freshman, and you look back on it now, and it's kind of funny with, you know, who's gone where, and, like, uh, you're afraid of anybody who came with any prior experience. It's like, how am I ever going to live up to this? So when you walk into that setting, um, how do you go about, in some ways, running your own race so that you can be successful in your own right? Well, that's a good way to look at it. Run your own race. You know, be your own person and, and have enough self-confidence to understand that there's only one Doug Sherman. And so while I may not be... Mike Tirico or Sean McDonough or some of these other guys, they aren't me either. And so stay in your lane, do your thing, and, and get better. And uh, that's easier said than done, especially when you're 18 years old, 19 years old. And, um, you know, there are a lot of young men and, and women as well, but in my day, I'm a little older, it was mostly guys uh, who, bless them, they went to Syracuse knowing of the reputation of Newhouse and WAER and had dreams of becoming radio and television 
personalities, and it just didn't work out. I mean, my first uh, meeting, as I recall, for the incoming freshman in the class of 88, uh, we had a, uh, a welcome meeting at AER for what turned out to be about four spots for that class at WAER. There were like 70 of us. So you think about it, there's over 60 guys who, for a variety of reasons, wound up not getting that opportunity. Now, they could go to WJPZ, they could go in another path and get to where they wanted to go. It wasn't the only avenue to get out of Newhouse with uh, the tools you needed to be successful in the industry. But there are an awful lot of guys, for whatever reason, uh, just didn't make the cut. And so I, I've always said that, you know, Syracuse more so than any other place in Newhouse, if you can survive that meat grinder and get yourself through that, and you know, for the most part, you're a teenager going through that. If you can do that, you can make it in what can be a very difficult industry. Where did that spit you out first? I know you wound up working in, in Albany in television for two decades. Um, what was the intermediary between that and when you graduated? I worked uh, at WSYR Radio in Syracuse for a year doing news and sports. That was the first job to just get whatever I could get. I uh, realized, I mean, I never wanted to do news, but if that's part of the job description, you take it and do it. And uh, unfortunately, one of the news stories that I had to cover uh, was the bombing of the Pan Am flight over Lockerbie, Scotland, and it further reinforced to me boy, I really am not cut out for this. You know, to talk to the surviving family members and all the things that went along with it, I, I'm better suited to be at, a, at an arena or at a football stadium uh, doing my thing. So that further reinforced that I, I don't want to follow a news path where, you know what, one of my classmates, uh, a guy named Sean Colthard, he did all the AER sports stuff with us, but he thought that there'd be a quicker path to the top if he went into news, so he immediately went into news. Uh, long story short, 30 years later, his name is Michael Cole, and he's the lead announcer at, uh, at WWE. So you never know where the path's going to take you. But anyhow. You mentioned covering the Lockerbie uh, bombing. Um, and for people that aren't associated with Syracuse, is still so well known and remembered by the university. There are Lockerbie scholars right now um, that you can go to the university, and it's one of the highest level scholarships you can get in remembrance of those that were killed. Um, so covering that. Uh, going back to being a news reporter, um, what was that like, and how did you handle that being so young um, and obviously decides to point you in the direction of this isn't something I want to be able to, to do and have to handle in my career on a daily basis? Well, we had a tremendous news staff at WSYR. They, uh, at the time when radio was still much more viable in a local market like that where you'd have a big news staff, we had a great staff, and I was just a part-timer doing my thing uh, as best I could. Um, we broke that story. One of my classmates, who actually was the other young hire right out of college who wanted to be in news and stayed in news for a long, long time, she was the one who pieced together in her mind uh, that, oh, wait a second, a plane just went down and it was leaving where, coming where. She, she's the one who realized there are probably lots of Syracuse students coming back from their semesters overseas, and, and sure enough, she was able to figure out pretty quickly that's what was going on. And uh, so I, I remember... One of the things that I did that really was stark in terms of contrast from what I wanted to do, they had, of course, remembrances and a memorial before the next basketball game at the Dome, the next Syracuse game. And so that was my assignment that night, to go to the Dome and not cover the game, but to cover the service. And I was just like, wow. I mean, I appreciate what they're doing, and 
and it's it's important work and I, I'm glad for those who have followed that career path but you know you suck it up you do what you have to do you do your job and you compartmentalize um, but if you don't have a passion for it you shouldn't follow it and uh, I was fortunate enough to, to move on so I got a a TV job uh, at the ABC affiliate in Elmira, New York. Worked there for two months. Never even moved to Elmira. Stayed in Syracuse and drove to Elmira every day because I knew I wasn't going to be there a long time. Then I got a job as the radio voice at Siena College in Albany and, and also as sports director for a radio station there. Uh, left that after four years to become the voice of the Syracuse Chiefs, the AAA baseball affiliate then of the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, got fired from that job after two years. Uh, and then another AER colleague of mine, Dave Ryan, class of 89, who was sports director at the NBC affiliate in Syracuse at that time, uh, offered me a job to be the number three guy. And at that point, you know, I'd made it through my, most of my 20s doing radio and repeatedly would hear from people, you got to get out of radio, you got to do television, you got to do television. And got to that point and I'm like, you know, I'm not making any money at all. I don't have enough money in my pocket to ask a girl out on a date. I don't have a couch. I have nothing to my name, and I'm seven years into my, quote, career. And so I had that television opportunity that Dave extended to me and, and decided to take that and run. At the same time, I had a, an opportunity to go to 1010 Wins Radio in New York City uh, and had to make a career decision at that point. Do I continue to pursue radio and continue to live below the poverty line in New York City? Or do I, you know, take this TV opportunity and see what I can do? So that, again, was a short-time job. I was there four months, again, with the idea that, Doug, get yourself a fresh TV tape and uh, get yourself out of here. And that's that's how I then got the job in Albany at the CBS affiliate. Well, it's good to hear 30 years later that I need to get out of radio. Um, so <laughs> that's not, i, I got to get on this now. <laughs> that's not altogether true. But there are far fewer opportunities to even make a good living yeah in radio than there were when I was coming up. My sole focus when I got to school was to be a radio guy. I never thought for a second I wanted to do television, but I'm the least prescient person on the planet. So as soon as I get into local radio, the numbers decline. You know, in markets other than the biggest ones, you don't have any sort of sports presence on the AM stations anymore. Uh, so then I got into local television, and local television has not done so well over the last decade plus. Uh, so I am not somebody who you want to follow in terms of Doug's got his finger on the pulse of where the industry's headed. Do you ever think about what would have happened had I gone to 1010 wins? Or is it one of those things where it's just like, you know what, things have worked out fine since then? No, I do. And, and I'll never know. And it's the, one of the great unanswered questions. And uh, would it have been a quicker path to greater success? I will never know. Um, I'd like to think I would have gotten to where I am one way or the other. But uh, no, I, that's the one fork in the road in my career where I do think, did I make the right decision? All works out that ends well. Here we are sitting here uh, having you just done a, a nationally televised broadcast of college basketball and are working full time with ESPN, uh, which you did simultaneously for a while while you were a local television anchor. And I want to get to that crossover period in a second. Um, but tell me about the local TV side of things first and foremost. Um, and just what that was like for you for two decades. Because for me, like I, I never wanted to be the guy, I never wanted to sit in the edit suite and be in the studio, as cool as that seems. And like, trust me, there are many days where I'm like, that seems really awesome. Um, but I've always wanted to be like in the action of the game. What was it like for you in terms of um, that side of things? And, and what did you find most fulfilling about being able to be uh, that that kind of, 
local celebrity in Albany, New York as, as the sports guy? Well, I don't know about celebrity, but you are recognized uh, when you get go around town. But probably the neatest thing for me at that point was you finally had a lot of eyeballs on you in the market you were in when you're doing some of the smaller radio stuff that I'd been doing. You could call a great game. You could have all sorts of good things going on, and, and not many folks would know it, where in television, if, if you did something good, you'd hear about it and get that reaffirmation that, hey, you're doing all right. Um, so that was probably the best thing about it. Uh, when I got hired at WRGB in Albany in 95, I was the, the weekend guy. My intention was not to stay there 21 years. I signed a three-year contract and thought, oh, my gosh, that's a long time. But then, you know, I liked the idea of some stability. I liked the idea of a better paycheck. I liked the idea of I met my wife at that time, and you get settled in a little bit. And then uh, the sports director leaves. They replace him with me. Then you sign a new contract. And before you know it, it's five years, eight years, 12 years, 20 years. Um, but back to what you were saying about wanting to be not stuck in the studio, so to speak, I never really took my at least one of my toes out of the play-by-play -play pool. I always was doing something um, where I was able to get that fix and get myself uh, into the arena setting and be able to enjoy it the way you and I like to, to enjoy sports. And so uh, I had an opportunity to be the television voice for the MAC, the MAAC, in 96. We call it the bad MAC and the good MAC. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. The, uh, the much lesser MAC, and I will acknowledge that. Obviously, the Mid-American Conference has good football and uh, good basketball as well, where uh, the MAAC is just a hoops league. and Some would say just high-scoring football. Well, okay, I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> but uh, I was able to do that. So what started out to be six or eight or ten games in the wintertime for them on the MSG Network in New York City um, continued to grow and grow and grow, and what was a MAC game of the week turned into a... 20 and 30 game package over the course of a few years and that'll change your profile because people in new york city people watch msg too yes and and i thought that that might be something that would open up a few doors but the the break that i got was when espnu came online i think it was 2005 the mac commissioner rich enser who is who is very prescient when it comes to business dealings realized this as a great opportunity that ESPNU is going to be needing programming and so he made available MAC games on odd nights that traditionally Friday night was not a night the MAC played but ESPNU had an opening and so he got himself a national game of the week and linked up with ESPN so that was how I was grandfathered into the ESPN world uh, myself and three other announcers who the MAC had employed in previous years so a uh, men's play-by-play -play and analyst and a women's play-by-play -play and analyst. After the first year of us doing those games on ESPNU, ESPN then took control of who they were going to have on their air and they decided to keep me and let the other folks go. So that was a good sign. I'm like, all right, I'll take that. And then so throughout the next 10 years, I kept getting more and more work as a freelancer while I was still working full-time at the CBS affiliate in, uh, in Albany. And I always had to make sure I had language in my main contract that I was able to, A, do these games and be able to do them during ratings periods. Because as you know, November and February are the big books in local television news. And it's near impossible to get yourself, if you're one of the lead anchors at that station, to get out of that responsibility and say, I'm not going to be there. 
And I had language in my contract grandfathered every single deal where I could pretty much go whenever I wanted to. So without that and without the support of my family and my wife and my coworkers at WRGB, I wouldn't have been able to continue to say yes every time ESPN called and said, can you be somewhere uh, to do a game? There was a newspaper article, though, when you left and went full-time to ESPN that quoted you as basically saying, I was working two full-time jobs simultaneously. How'd you do it? Well, it's not digging a ditch. It's not that tough. But there are. But you, you got to prep, and you got to. You still got to take the kids to the soccer game, and there's got to be time for your family, and you got to eat, and you got to go to the gym, whatever else you do. And all of a sudden, hours are fleeting. Yeah. Well, you know, I I wound up the last three or four years uh, of my freelance world with ESPN, basically working a full time schedule from September through March. So it wasn't 12 months a year where I was working two jobs. And I enjoy it so much. Yes, it's work. Yes, it's prep. Yes, it's travel. But it's fun, you know. And it's it's stuff that you and I would be following anyhow because we love the ball game. So it doesn't really feel like work. None of it really feels like work. Um, and so there did come a point where you realize, well, I can't continue this in perpetuity. I, I've got to go one way or the other. And if I can get the opportunity to go full-time with ESPN, that's what I'm looking to do. And uh, they wound up offering a deal, and my contract was winding down at the uh, CBS affiliate. And I actually was signed full-time with ESPN for the last year and a half I was at the local affiliate. Uh, But because I was already basically working a full-time job with ESPN, nobody really noticed but me. It was just a change in paperwork, and there was no reason for anybody but me to know that, well, I'm actually officially full-time at two different places. How did you uh, how you balance all of that though at the same point and 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 keep your head on straight? Like, was there a time? Is there a is there? I don't know. Horror story is the way to describe it. But can you remember like a stretch where you had some ungodly travel or some ungodly number of games in a short period um, that was both fun and exhausting all at the same time? Well, you're basically describing 2007 until about 2016. That's what I'm talking about, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, as I mentioned before... It's just, it's fun. It's fun, but I had the support of my wife, and I had, which is impossible to undersell. If you don't have that, and I have colleagues, you have colleagues who have spouses and family members who just don't get what we do. And my wife never batted an eyelash about anything honey I gotta go to Baltimore tomorrow to do a game I just found out yesterday smiled and supported me so I can't overstate that and then uh, I had two weekend guys with me at the the local affiliate a guy named Tim Mack for eight years and then a guy named Kelly O'Donnell Syracuse class of 03 very famous on the promos yes yeah so those two guys couldn't have been more flexible when again I'm getting a phone call on fairly short notice to say Doug can you be wherever and they covered me every single time I think Joel for the whatever it was 10-12 years I was freelancing I think I told ESPN no once and that was because uh, RGB was sending me down to the Super Bowl in Tampa to cover the Giants and it was kind of hard to say yeah I'm not ESPN if they would send you to the Super Bowl (laughs) (laughs) so I think that's the only time out of hundreds and hundreds of games and events that I did for them for people that don't know the name, Kelly O'Donnell, by the way, uh, famous on the WAER promos because Bob Costas one day showed up at the studio. Kelly was doing sportscast that day and comically wrote into his script that the Twins needed a boost. Talking about the Minnesota Twins, 
Costas read the script on the air, so forever the promo was, thank you, Kelly, the twins needed a boost from Bob Costas. <laughs> so that's where that has lived on in, in great infamy. Um, when you started taking on games at, at ESPN, just tell me about your process in doing all of that. When you take a step back, uh, what's good television to you, and kind of how did you strive to mold yourself um, into being someone that they, they wanted to keep calling on and a product they wanted to put on the air? Well, regardless of where we are and whatever uh, part of the media we're in, we're all storytellers. And so to me, telling good stories, regardless if it's the written word, the spoken word, uh, radio, television, podcast, whatever, good stories are what we are all about. And uh, so to me, it translates, those skills translate from whatever thing you are doing. So getting into play-by-play, well, what we do is following the action, as you know, Joel, play-by-play on radio is much different than television. Play-by-play on radio, you've got to really be sharp and identify everybody and be the eyes of the audience, and the play-by-play guy is the star of the broadcast, and the analyst is just filling in around. Um, Television is completely different, where, yes, I am steering the ship a little bit, but by and large, the analyst is the star, and we are just talking about whatever big picture micro macro whatever um, and a lot of those are stories so we get the opportunity we have great access with ESPN uh, to be able to go to all the practices and talk to coaches and players and I'm looking to cultivate as many stories as I can and so like the game I just got done doing uh, had Alabama in it and Crimson Tide basketball fans know way more about Alabama than I will ever know they live breathe die Alabama basketball, my goal going into each national broadcast is try and teach those people one thing, two things, tell them a story they haven't heard elsewhere. Uh, It's easy enough just to do your prep by uh, reading the internet, reading all the newspaper stories, but we have the ability and the time built in to be able to access these people and try to have a better set of stories and, and change it. So again, my goal for having Alabama and Virginia Tech and Ball State and Northeastern again tomorrow is to tell different stories and to be able to, to share with the audience something they've not heard before while being true to the game and, and making sure we document what's going on in each game. How hard is it to not be that caricature of a television broadcaster that helicopters in and doesn't know anything and they're just going to tell you this that and the other like superficial stuff or you you know sometimes when you see a guy I'm like what does this guy know he's just he, he's, he's just showing up to call the game and it's a feeling that I've had sometimes like when you do TV and there's only so much you can learn in such a small period of time and at the same time you also want to be as all knowledgeable as possible um, what are the shortcuts or the corners that you cut um, that give you the best scope um, so that you feel like you truly know everything you need to know when you've got quick turnarounds and, and not to be that guy who's just showing up and, and trying to get through. Yeah, well, first of all, no matter how hard you work and no matter how well prepared you are, you'll never satisfy everybody. And no matter what, there are going to be people out there, rightly or wrongly, who are very critical of you and let you know that they don't think you're very good. And that's okay. Uh, as far as shortcuts, I don't know of any shortcuts. To me, it's just work. You know, you roll up your sleeves and spend every waking hour that you can preparing. I guess shortcut was the wrong word, but yeah. Yeah, but, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you don't want to be that guy. And, and certainly through AER and our experiences at Syracuse, you understand very quickly that you're not going to get cleared to be on WAER radio if you are not prepared and don't know your stuff. And it, it just carries through. So people will ask me how much time do you prepare for each game and I'll tell them well how much time do I have 
is from the moment the game ended today to the moment we tip off at 11 a.m. Eastern tomorrow, that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be prepping and, and trying to get better um, so that tomorrow I can be better than I was today. I know that's idealistic. It, it's not necessarily reasonable every time, but that's the goal. What do you read uh, and who do you talk to um, that's most important to you? And that's like beyond like game notes and things like that. What, do you, what are things that you like to go to um, to best inform you that uh, might be like Doug's, Doug's secret sauce? Well, I mean, the sports information directors are all very valuable, or, or many of them are valuable. You also understand the ones that maybe aren't uh, as good as some others, but they are always a great resource. Um, I just I use Google like everybody else and get my, my eyeballs on every single article I can. A lot of the SIDs also send you clips uh, that are newspaper stories from that media market, and they put them all in one place and make it very easy to you know go and, and pour through everything to try and cram uh, for what's been written over the last two, three, four months to get ready for the game. But again, the access that we have is unprecedented. You know, when I was the, the radio announcer at Siena College and even doing the Mac games for MSG or on MSG for all those years, I didn't have the same kind of carte, bl carte blanche access that I am afforded when you walk in with ESPN on your shirt. They let you do things that you can't otherwise. So that is ultimately the best resource that I have to be able to sit and talk to Buzz Williams for 30 minutes. When I was the visiting radio guy, if Sienna played Virginia Tech, I wouldn't have 30 minutes to talk to Buzz and then just walk out onto the court and talk to whoever I want to. So, so you know, you, you, you earn the right to get to ESPN or any of the other major networks. Um, and with that, you wind up getting things a little bit easier than you would have otherwise. What do you get from ESPN to uh, research packet-wise, I guess both pertaining to your game, but also I imagine they keep everybody on their staff pretty in tune nationally um, with some pretty in-depth stuff. Yeah, no doubt. Every, every day there is more stuff. Uh, ESPN Stats and Research is a big department, and they are feeding out information, original information, uh, every day. So you're right. It's not just, they talk about don't stay in your game silo. So when we were doing, you know, Virginia Tech today, we weren't just talking about Virginia Tech Ball State. We were making sure we know what's going on in the Mid-American Conference. We know what's going on in the ACC and we know what's going on nationally. And so with that in mind, ESPN feeds us an awful lot of stats and information that we can pick and choose. And, and depending on what your assignments are, you don't you don't have time to read everything and learn everything, but if you know you've got, you know, Miami and Syracuse coming up in three weeks, you're more apt to pay attention to a nugget that comes through today and squirrel it away that maybe it'll be useful for you down the road. How do you catalog stuff like that? Just beyond, and it could be stuff, something I want to know three weeks from now, but also just stuff beyond what would go on your chart in front of you. Like if you see a national stat, like, okay, i got to be aware of that to the point where you get into a game and you're not going crap, what was that thing I thought would be helpful but doesn't really fit anywhere on here? Um, how do you go from being well-read to, like, being a legit expert on everything they're giving you? Is that just, is it is it time, or do you have a, is there a cheat system of, like, I carry a file of note cards that I keep things on? Yeah, I don't, I probably don't do as good a job of that as I, as I should. Um, I try to squirrel stuff away as best I can, but you're so involved in the moment, it's hard to really look too far ahead, so... You know, there are things that I keep in the back of my head, and when I get to that particular game's uh, prep, I like to think that 
it pops back into my head and then I go find it. Um, and obviously not everything works that way and things probably get left by the wayside. Um, if it's important enough, I would print it up or you know write it down somewhere. Uh, so for instance, I know I've got the uh, Syracuse Cornell game coming up December 1st, I think it is. And so of course that's the Bayheim Bowl with Jim Bayheim coaching both for and against his two sons. And so the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle did a really nice story a couple, three weeks ago. And as soon as I saw it, I made sure to pull that aside and send it also to Tim McCormick, who I'll be doing the game with, uh, and also to our producer. And it's stuff like that. And so if I know I've texted it to Tim, I know when I need to go look for it, just go find my Tim McCormick text messages and there it'll be. So that's, that's kind of how I do that. You work with a bunch of analysts, too. Um, Tim's not the only guy, and obviously you work with Sean Farnham today, a different guy. Um, how do you bounce around from different people and get comfortable working with different people? Um, is there a, a checklist of when I sit down with somebody new, this is what we go over to make sure we're on the same page? No, but there is uh, a, a correlation between how well you know a guy and how well typically you come together on the air, and so it's just incumbent upon you to be able to foster a relationship as best you can. And sometimes uh, circumstances dictate that you are sitting next to somebody who you barely know or have just met that day or the day before, and there's no way around it, and you just hope for the best. And just as you and I are sitting here, you hope you have some sort of rapport and, and appreciation for each other, and, and sometimes that works better than others. And, and while it's being played out on television, it's really no different than... Um, Anybody in your personal life, when you meet people, sometimes you click, sometimes you don't, and that's just kind of the way it goes. The good news is most everybody I sit next to uh, is very prepared, very into being there, wants to be there, wants to do a great job, and so their best interest is my best interest and vice versa. Um, it behooves us to play nicely with each other. That doesn't always work out. Um, but I sure don't want to sit next to somebody who I A, don't respect, or B, hate, and I sure as heck want them to like me and respect me. So we go about trying to get to know each other in a crash course. And, and I've done a number of games over the years with Sean. Uh, Corey Alexander is the other analyst who's here today. Corey and I have done a ton of games. We've got a bunch of ACC games coming up. Um, so everyone's different. And, and I do cater each of my broadcasts to a degree at least. You know, we study each of the teams, but I also study my analyst. Not that you need to study Dick Vitale or Jay Billis because you know who they are and you know where they've been, but I also go through and refresh my memory just so that I see their path and if anything registers that makes sense from their past to that night's game that I can bring up, I do that. So I make sure I refresh my memory that Sean Farnham played years A, B, C, and D at UCLA. These are the guys he co played for. These are the guys he played with. Are there any connections? Look, with us, you were talking about whether or not he was on that UCLA team that, that exactly. got beat by Ball State. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, so, for instance, at an event like this, there are NBA scouts all over the place, and so I'm forever trying to figure out, does Sean know any of them? Does he have a connection that I can pull into the broadcast and, and do that way? And a lot of times then you can have fun with it, like we were saying about the UCLA uh, connection with, uh, with having – uh, play in the NCAA tournament and whether they won or lost and if I can playfully goof on Sean and and uh, and he's one of the good guys in, in terms of you can throw anything at him you can bust his chops you can have a good time and and you feel that out too there are guys who 
clearly want to stay much more on the straight and narrow X's and O's, and there are other guys who will go anywhere you lead them. And, and you, the only way to learn that really is, is when you sit next to them. Have you done a game with Dick or with Jay? I have uh, with both of them. And so the first game I did with Dick was uh, a top 15 game, Virginia-Louisville. And uh, I had not met Dick. So now Dick, things are different. You know, the rules are different with Dick Vitale. And so he flies private to every game. He pays for it out of his own pocket. Um, but he no longer, I mean, he's, he's pushing 80. I'm not sure where he is in his 70s. He's somewhere at least in his mid-70s. He is indefatigable, he, but he is still not a young man. So, uh, so that day we had a night game. I think it was a 7 o'clock game in Louisville. He lives in Florida. He doesn't come the day before for practice like the rest of us. Uh, he just has earned that right not to do that. So he flew. I don't remember when wheels were up, but the game was at 7. He maybe left Florida at around noon. Got to Louisville around four, and so he and I had a crash course of getting to know each other a little bit, and uh, and had a great time. And um, uh, he uh, he was somebody who you know I didn't grow up watching him. He got on television when I was in junior high school. Got on ESPN, so I've had a feeling for what I was getting into. Um, and then and then Jay uh, Jay Billis and I did one game last year. It was. Uh, North Carolina at Tennessee, so that was a fun game. And sitting next to Jay in that environment, I must admit, less so about sitting next to Jay and more so about what he represents as the top of our food chain, that if I'm sitting next to him, A, it's affirming, and B, I better be on top of my game. And, and somewhat the same way with Dick, but Dick's a little different, and, and Dick... Uh, it's just different. Jay and Dick are one and one A in a lot of ways, but you know Jay is is the the here and now and going forward. Well, so you said there's different rules with a guy like Dick Vitale, and that just applies like physically to calling a game too, because yeah. he is not a typical analyst. Like in some respects, he becomes the show, and and your job as a play-by-play announcer is very much different than if you were calling a game with anybody else. Uh, how do you adjust yourself to get used to that? Because like you just have to accept the fact that you're not going to be able to, A, talk as much or a lot, and, like, there might be moments that you would normally hit that you're just not going to, and, like, that is incumbent upon you to make that adjustment. It's not incumbent upon him to get used to you. No question about that. And, and not everybody uh, is as willing to see the spotlight as I am. I don't get paid by the word. I don't really care. I want for the broadcast collectively to be as good as it can be. And as you say... Dick's going to be Dick. But I guess how hard is it to make that change in yourself? Because it's just, it's something certainly you're not used to on a regular basis. Yeah, I would say it's not hard at all. Uh, to me, it's, it's, again, knowing the person you're sitting next to, whether there's a television camera pointing at you or not, or whether you have a microphone in front of you or not. To me, it's intuitive. Um, I did games with Bob Knight uh, before he was, you know, let go by ESPN. And that's another one where you go into it understanding the rules that apply for most of us do not apply for him and that this broadcast is going to be different and done, you know, in a manner that suits him that not necessarily suits the group. Um, and so you go in understanding that and, and, you know, people like Dick and Jay and uh, Coach Knight have earned that right, you know, and, and I don't begrudge them that and it would only behoove me to go along and, and make the day and the night and the broadcast just as good as it can possibly be. So I wouldn't say that is difficult or a challenge, uh, but you absolutely cater your style to your analyst based on who they are and how they come across. 
what's your uh, what's your self evaluation process like? Uh, how much do you watch yourself back? And I guess how has that changed throughout your career uh, and the types of things that you look for? I watch back less and less because I hate seeing and hearing myself more and more. I I used to listen and watch everything, and over the last several years, I mean, I've got a DVR full of my broadcast back at home, and I don't watch very much of it at all. I'll go and look at some specific things that I have in my head that I understand I want to see, but in terms of just sitting and, and watching and listening, as I've gotten older, I have less and less interest to do that. What's hard about watching yourself back? Because I feel like a lot of us have that fear. We're all hypercritical of ourselves. I mean, there's no bigger critic than I am of myself. Um, And so, uh, for instance, I don't know if you're the same way, but I am forever thinking, how could I have said that better? How could I have said it more succinctly? How could I have used different verbiage or language? How could I? And the whole, so it's, it's, agonizing would be too strong, but you sit there and you just go over and over and over in your head which I do even without watching tonight my head will hit the pillow and I'll be going over a hundred things in my head that could have done differently uh, and also thinking about things that I think went well Um, so to me it's it's more torture than it's worth do you get feedback from ESPN too or is it one of those things where the less you hear the better off you're doing well there is some some truth to that the less you hear the better off uh, you are but we do get our fair amount of feedback, no question about it. Uh, in college basketball, I have a coordinating producer who is our boss who gives the assignments. His, his name is David Seisler. And uh, he does have feedback both in the written form and in phone calls. It's not every game. It's not, not you can go weeks or months without hearing anything, but uh, he lets you know he's paying attention. And, you know, he does it. He does the, the critical stuff in, in a manner that it's easy to receive. Um, and you also understand he's not shy about calling or reaching out saying, great job, I loved what you guys did. Is there, is there something that like ESPN likes in terms of a, a game, too, or in terms of an announcer? Um, there's like that. You mentioned Michael Cole earlier when it comes to like professional wrestling because I'm a nerd in that area. <laughs> they always say, like, this guy works a WWE style. And like an independent wrestler is going to go with a different style. When you come to WWE, like, you have to conform to their style. Is there something, is there like, is there an ESPN announcer or something that, like, this is what reflects well on the network and this is the type of guy they want and they want you to be? Um, are there types of things like that? or And do they do they give you feedback that, that helps you kind of fit to that description, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, I would say no. I think uh, they like for each of us to be unique. They want each of us, obviously, to be professional and accurate and uh, not embarrass the company. Um, that's very important, and ESPN is owned by Disney, so they are very particular about not going over the line. Uh, so we hear that sort of stuff. But in terms of trying to fit us into a certain ESPN mold, I don't think so. I don't feel that. I, I don't remember a time where any of my bosses have made me feel that way. Um, the critiques that I get are more game-specific about how you could handle this situation better or that situation better. Um, But stylistically, no. I I wouldn't say there is one theme that we are all trying to follow. I guess they they send out those best practices emails too, don't they? Like with clips and things that are interesting to look at. Um, And I I think sometimes they do like, this is creative and different. Uh, How does your mind think outside the box sometimes? And, And do you ever come up with ideas to like... I remember there was there was you know like 
Benetti and Dockage did like the not mean tweets with Dan Dockage. Yeah. I think Kevin Brown at one point flipped play-by-play and analyst roles for a four-minute stretch. Yeah. Um, who who drives a lot of that? Is that a production side thing, or, or will you come up with ideas sometimes that they like? Hey guys, bear with me. Right. But this is cool. Yeah. Well, it's a combination, and they that is encouraged by everybody in the process. So whether it's a producer or a director or the play-by-play or analyst, that sort of stuff uh, comes organically wherever it comes from. And so you mentioned Jason and Kevin. They are two guys who are very much looking to push that envelope and, and have fun with those things. And uh, so in that case where Jason is with Dan Dockage, you understand with Dan, you have a lot greater latitude to be able to do anything. And uh, and he is somebody, and, and Jason, I don't know whether he has or not, we do get reined in. If you go too far with certain things, uh, they are very much paying attention to that. And, and as you know, sometimes things work, sometimes they don't. You've got good intentions, you want to be able to do it, you want to be edgy or funny or different or creative, those are all great things, but they're not always going to hit their mark. And in television, there are an awful lot of variables that go into whether you hit your mark on anything, that there are so many things that need to work in concert for it to go home the way you want it to. So uh, they, we are all encouraged to be part of the process, be part of the creative process, and they want for us to do things. You know, when you're doing thousands of games a year, it's hard to make any one stand out. And so they want for us to put a unique brand, if possible, without being stupid and going over the top uh, on each broadcast, if possible. I don't want to take too much more of your time because you talked about uh, you have a lot of prep for two more games tomorrow. Oh, so we've gone, we've gone almost 45 minutes here. Uh, but, Doug, I appreciate you sitting down and, and giving some insight and, and reflecting a little bit. And uh, uh, hopefully we can all put it to good use. So I appreciate you, uh, you uh, sitting and chatting. I'm thrilled to be here, and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say go Orange. I hope that I know this will play for a while, but I hope we beat the heck out of Connecticut tonight in basketball and Notre Dame in football on Saturday. Go Orange. We are a football school, Doug. This is, this is an immense <laughs> week in the history of, ball, of, 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 of Syracuse uh, athletics. So uh, the next 72 hours are going to be a fairly high tension for all of us. Yes, yes. Go Orange. And I'm sure Mike Tirico will not be biased at all come Saturday. <laughs> but that'll be fun to watch. Uh, Doug, thanks again. Thank you. Doug Sherman, again, is our guest here on episode number 128 of PXP Cast. I thought the stuff at the end there was interesting. We talk about, um, you know, the 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 ESPN mold or ESPN style of announcer, if there is a thing, so to speak, or the fact that there really isn't a thing. Um, the, the idea of just being who you are and being good at your craft, uh, but also the, the idea of prepping for your analyst and knowing who they are, not just as a person, um, but knowing like every nook and cranny of their background, even as far as like what opponents they might've played in what years and different ways you can reference them. Uh, and it just goes to different ways you can set them up, different ways you can let them shine, uh, different ways you can have fun with them, different ways that you can draw uh, certain memories, recollection, uh, recollections, and analyses uh, out of people that have such a great uh, database of basketball or football, whatever sport you're working with, um, such a great catalog in their minds and finding ways to access uh, to access new things and and ways to to you know help bring the best out of them because at the end of the day, uh, you can have the best call of your life. But if the guy next to you is not having a great call and it's your fault, well, usually it's just your fault. Like, that blame falls on you. You're, you're driving the chair, and it's, it's your job and our job as play-by-play broadcasters um, not just to sound good ourselves, but to sound good as a unit. So uh, I thought that was interesting about how he goes about 
um, prepping not just for uh, the game he's doing, but who he's doing it with as well. Uh, Doug Sherman here on episode 128. I mentioned Jordan Burnfield off the top. Hopefully we'll have him in the next couple of weeks, but a lot more coming uh, your way from Charleston, including the first ever episode of this podcast recorded while a game was going on courtside. So you'll get some cool crowd noise coming up. Maybe next week or the week after. Uh, In the meantime, we're out of time for this week. So thanks as always for tuning in. For Doug Sherman, my name is Joel Gadet. The music is Marshmallow. He doesn't know. Don't let him know. We're not using it legally, but it's still good at the end of the pod. Nobody said anything. See you next week. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.